Welcome to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. Today on the 4th of July, I'm here with Daniel A. Kaufman. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. But you go more by Dan, right, I, rather than Daniel? I'm very easygoing. So my people who've known me since I was a child call me Danny, which always makes me smile because it's it reminds me of my childhood. And some people call me Daniel. Some people call me Dan. I really don't mind one way or the other. I think you call me Dan, don't you? Yeah, typically I do. That's fine. If I don't call you jerk or something like that. No, I'm kidding. You can call me that too. I can't promise I won't say something much worse back though. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't expect that. Wouldn't expect that. So you are a professor at, of philosophy at Missouri State University, correct? That's right. I've been and here now for 20 years. Terrific. And you also run the Electric Agora platform. Um, how would you describe that? So I publish an online, I would call it an online webzine because I'm not the sole writer. So it's not a blog. It's um, We have a stable of writers that write for us, as well as I will publish one-offs that are submitted to me if they're of suitable quality. In terms of the magazine's content and character, I would say it's heavily inflected with philosophy. Um, in other words, it, it, it definitely orients towards my philosophy background. There's quite a bit of philosophy in it, but there's also um, a, a lot of essays on popular culture, um, on politics, and on the intersection of philosophy with all of those. And so it's a pretty eclectic, I like it that way. It's a pretty eclectic uh, web magazine. It's a terrific name, Electric Agora. I love that. It's just great. How'd you come up with that? So I originally founded the magazine with um, uh, a, a young man named Dan Tippins. Dan is a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Miami. Now, when I met him, he was an undergraduate at Columbia he was the managing editor for Massimo Piliucci's then webzine, Scientia Salon. And I was a regular commentator there. And so Dan and I sort of met that way. And then when Massimo closed Scientia down, Dan and I decided to start this venture up. Some of our stable of contributors are people who were also heavy contributors to the common section at Scientia. So it's a kind of a, an outgrowth of it. And he and I just brainstorming came up with the name that was, that, that was just uh, from us, uh, us just on Skype trying to figure out names. And I, we went through a dozen, I think, before we came up with this one. And I, if I, if you asked me to remember some of the others, I couldn't tell you. Um, it also involved doing web searching to make sure we weren't calling it something that some other entity was being called. So uh, Dan no longer uh, w works for the magazine. Uh, it just it just became uh, unwieldy given the workload that he uh, that he has as a graduate student and and now as an as a teacher. I mean, he's teaching his own courses now, so he's quite busy. You've also got this. Uh, was it, would you call it a video blog or a vlog or a podcast? The at meaning of life TV. So. Robert Wright and Mickey Kaus a long time ago started bloggingheads.tv, which was primarily a public affairs program that would bring on journalists and, you know, people like, you know, Andrew Sullivan and Matthew Iglesias and people like that. And it, it's been going on now for well over a decade. And it added a sister site called Meaning of Life TV because blogging heads was starting to have more and more content that was sort of outside the politics, public affairs content, stuff to do with philosophy and science and even some religion and spirituality. And I pitched a, sh a philosophy show to Robert Wright called Sophia. At the time, it was just me and Massimo doing dialogues. And then so he gave me he gave me the the program, um, which is now which was actually the inaugural program that launched the meaning of life side of blogging heads and um, Massimo and I did it for years. I think I've been doing it since 2015. So it's five years now. And eventually, you know, as these things go, you know, you, you'll find this also if you wind up having a regular uh, partner on your own program, eventually you kind of exhaust all the things that you have to talk to each other about. And so you kind of waiting for new things to come along to talk about. And so I started talking with other people. Crispin Sartwell has become a regular. He's a professor at Dickinson College. People may know him. He's quite a 
quite a public intellectual as well as a, uh, a, a highly published philosopher, uh, as well as Robert Gressis of Cal State Northridge, who you've had on the show. And of course, you yourself have been on my show. So we all make a little, a merry little insider crowd here um, <laughs> and cross-pollinate each other, which all joking aside, I actually think is one of the most exciting things about intellectual life is the way you sort of network with people and form these little collectives where you all do things with each other. Uh, I really, this is a part of the, of what I do that I enjoy the most actually. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been on your show a couple of times and we both have thought that like there were some threads that we wanted to pick up on, particularly about some of the things we were talking about in our first conversation about philosophical disposition, this kind of thing. And I think one of the things we have in common, uh, you and I, is just we each kind of have an interest in like big picture type questions in philosophy. I mean, it, and this is a dispositional thing. You can be the kind of intellect that likes to drill down into very precise questions. And that's I, that's respectable, too. You know, I'm not saying one is better than the other, but you've got this you've got this paper that you sent me that is called knowledge wisdom and the philosopher that's very much of the uh, painting in, in broad strokes kind of picture of philosophy do you think that's a fair characterization yes so um let me um be clear about a few things so first of all i definitely agree with you that we both like big picture questions where we come apart is that you like big picture answers and i don't <laughs> So, so in that sense, it, it creates a nice sort of healthy tension between us because um, we we both love the questions, but my love for the question is so that I can figure out how to deflate it, and your love for the question is because you like you like the answers to remain big as well as the questions. At least that's my impression. In terms of the paper that you reference, so that's the paper from pretty early in my career. If if what by career we mean my actual professional life as a philosopher. I don't know how this went for you, but I taught throughout most of my own graduate education. So I've been actually teaching at the university since 2003. So that's, we're talking, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, since, excuse me, 1993. That's how freaking old I am. I've been teaching at the university level since 1993. Anyway, so the, the paper reflects early in my professional career, in ter- meaning in terms of my being in a tenure track, not graduate student, full full blown job, it does reflect somewhat of an earlier. It reflects the, the a time when I was still a self identified conservative politically, and it certainly reflects some of that. Now I no longer would self identify that way, although a lot of people still think I really am in some way a conservative. It's also anti social contract theory, which I would no longer uh, advance. I'm pro social contract theory now and political philosophy. But you are right in the sense that it does reflect a sort of an appeal for a, appeal of big questions and maybe doing philosophy in such a way that's not so damn meticulous and Bean County. I don't have a lot of patience. I'm not the greatest details guy. I do. I do prefer to to paint in broad strokes. There is some philosophical reason for that as well. I think a lot of the the excessive detail picking has a lot of diminishing returns. And it also reflects, I should say this, it reflects my interest in history. I have a history degree as well as a philosophy degree. And so I'm always interested in, in sort of where ideas come from. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not also an analytic philosopher and like to sort of take things out of history and sort of take the best of, every, you know, the best of this one and the best of that one and create something out of it. But I am also I'm very mindful of of the history and where things come from and what they reflect and uh, and all of that. So now I was reading this and I thought this is the kind of project, the kind of broad picture focus where sort of like mapping the terrain from above you know you're 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 flying above the uh, the terrain and looking down at the landscape whereas most analytic philosophers i get the sense are more like with their microscopes looking at some little detail with extreme rigor and i think there's a place for both of those approaches but it seems like the general culture of academic philosophy is more like looking under the microscope not mapping the terrain does that meet your impression or match your impression i would say yes and I would say that that has, as far as I understand, always been the case with analytic philosophy. I will say that the analytic philosophers who I thought were the most impre- who impressed me the most and who uh, I think have had the longest lasting significance uh, 
have dealt quite a bit with big picture things. Uh, I'm thinking about people like Nelson Goodman, uh, Willard Quine. You know, you can't get much bigger than a paper like Ontological Relativity, right? I mean, these are these are you know Hillary Putnam and uh, Donald, you know, Donald Davidson. So, so I mean, you know, I think you're right in the characterization of analytic philosophy. But of course, something as large and complex with as many people in that is going to even a true characterization is going to be untrue thirty percent of the time, right? And and I do think that they there has been really excellent big picture work done, even mapping work done. You know, one of my professors in graduate school was Jerry Fodor, and he has a very famous um, mapping paper on different positions in the philosophy of mind. He basically lays out position map. I, w- I found I was very influenced by that. I like that kind of thing, you know, and, and so I was trying to do that here, and uh, I, I like doing that generally. I, I do that quite a bit, actually, try to map things out and so I wanted to say something a little bit earlier about your comment about our differences where we, we both like big picture questions, but I like big picture answers and you don't. I yes. wanted to add, add a bit of refinement to that. I think I am a fallibilist, although I can't be totally certain about that, but I think I'm a fallibilist. So I think that any of the big answers that I come to would, could only be provisional. Certainly that's true, I, I think, of philosophy. Uh, I, I'm never going to think like, okay, I've got this totally nailed down. There's like a list of perennial questions and I'm just checking them off one by one. Um, That's not how I think of it. But I do want to say there may be three different categories of attitudes you can take to the big questions. You can have like a, here's the answer. And that can be either like provisionally or, you know, with Cartesian certainty or whatever. Then you can have, you know, deflate the question. And then there's a third approach that might be different from each, which is to have a sense of mystery that isn't deflated, isn't easily pushed out the door. This is another thing. I, like, I've noticed that in analytic philosophy, there's this desire to be hard-nosed in which a sense of mystery is treated as a kind of like sentimentalism that needs to be pushed out the door as quickly as possible or, or, or something like that. Well, let me ask you, I mean, along those lines, be a bit, maybe be a bit more specific. Give me an example of some issue that is, let's say, commonly taken up by analytic philosophers, which you think would benefit from retaining a sense of mystery about it and maybe even give a give a sketch of what that might look like. Because I'm not sure, I'm, I, I would hear, need to hear something specific before I I could weigh in on what I think of it. Right. Well, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is Mysterianism about consciousness of a kind that Colin McGinn defended, where like, look, let's just admit that we have this profound mystery before us. None of the proposed solutions seem to work to our satisfaction. And the solution is not to say like, yep, we've got the answer or or the question isn't real. It's to be sort of humble and think, wow, we have a really profound mystery before us. McGinn goes so far as to say, perhaps our position should be that, in principle, we can't unravel this mystery. I'm not going that far, but I'm thinking certainly for now, it seems like a sense of mystery and wonder might be the appropriate emotional hyphen cognitive reaction to this issue. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting, and I think that maybe there there is something there that we may disagree on. I guess I sort of want to be annoyingly split annoyingly split the difference in principle. I certainly could see there being something which remains a mystery and which it's not so bad that we acknowledge that it remains a mystery. I don't think consciousness is one of them. And my general inclination when confronted with such things is my first suspicion is not that it's a mystery, but that it's a bad question. So I tend to agree with Hume that paradoxes is where represent where inquiry ends, not where it begins, right? That's the difference between Hume and Kant, right? Hume, you get to skeptical paradoxes. That means you've reached the limits of reason, and now you're just sort of over in the realm of natural belief. And because belief is always prior to reason, because one has to believe something first before one can reason about anything, including the principles which one employs in the reasoning, Belief always is prior to therefore to warrant. And so what happens when you sort of reach the limits of 
what can be demonstrated without contradiction or puzzlement or Hume things, that's the point at which, you know, it's time to stop uh, and go play backgammon. And I tend to agree with that. Uh, that also is the genuine, generally the Wittgensteinian posture, which, as you know, uh, but the audience may not, um, is is a, an orientation which I buy into quite a bit. And Wittgenstein also was of the view that the very sort of perennial philosophical questions that seem to be unsolvable about which you might say, well, they, they remain a mystery usually remain so because they're bad questions to begin with uh, that usually involve some misunderstanding of language or some conflation or, and so I, I'm actually working on a project right now, a rather extended project in which I'm trying to demonstrate that most of the significant problems in metaphysics and epistemology and the philosophy of mind and the philosophy of action are like that. There are a lot of them are just bad questions. So I don't I don't reject in principle the idea that something could remain a mystery, but when I, when something looks that way, my initial suspicion is that it's because there's a bad question un, involved, and that's why we're having so much trouble finding an answer. Yeah, I think this is a an, a point of disagreement between us, and I would point out not only a, maybe a disagreement in views, but I think it's a, maybe a, a difference in temperament, right? Like if you if your inclination is to try to expose this as a bogus question or something, that might be a, a temperamental difference between us. Certainly. I think that that, that, that is certainly uh, part of it. And, and I have argued myself that I think philosophies are as much expressions of the temperament of the philosopher as they are something like scientific theories and, or, or where, where what it's primarily about is the subject matter. That's why I've argued in many, many occasions that philosophy in many ways is closer to the fine arts than it is to science, or at least it should be. I think a lot of philosophers are self-deluded on this point. But I do think also that there's something else to it. I mean, and, and maybe you, you know, this is something you might disagree with, but I've noticed that it's also that this divide between you and I, I also kind of exists between me and Robert Gressis. It strikes me as non-accidental that both you and Robert come from religious traditions. Um, where mysteries are built into the fundamental sort of structure of how one thinks about the world and one's relationship to it. Now, I come from a religious tradition, but it's one that's primarily ethnically expressed. That is, I'm Jewish. I'm very Jewish, <laughs> and no one would ever think I was anything else just from the way I behave and speak and my manner and such. But I've never believed in anything supernatural or held on to or bought into any of the supernatural dimensions of Judaism. For me, it's an ethnic tradition, a very important one, but an ethnic tradition nonetheless. And so I suspect that the, the Mysterian sort of instinct is not accidentally related to being to having at least for part of one's life bought into the idea of the supernatural, which I don't. So I don't think that's probably true in my case, but I think there is going to be a general overlap between having a religious temperament or sensibility and having this kind of philosophical, call it pro-mystery temperament, right. if you will. I, I right. think that much is true. Right. Um, I, I wanted to move on to your article, but now that you've got me going on this, I want to linger on this a bit and ask you about what you think of this as a mystery. The uh, Why is there something rather than nothing question. I guess I, I've heard accounts of how that can be deflated, but that's one where it hits me and I think, yeah, that seems like a really profound mystery. It's funny. The minute you said that, I went, I immediately made me think of sort of a dueling essays I did with Robert Gressis, where he divided all of philosophy into Protestants and Catholics. Yes. Protestants being the ones who think that philosophy is mostly crap and Catholics being one who buy into it because of course, philosophy uh, Protestants are represent a, a rebellious tradition against the institution of the Catholic church. And I wrote a, a snarky kind of essay saying, Hey, what about Jewish philosophers? And I kind of wrote the whole thing full of like Yiddish Yiddish words that, that made the whole thing very sort of comedic. And I'm wondering whether there's a bit of that, involved in our difference as well because the question that you just asked me about i have never thought was remotely interesting i always thought was a foolish silly question never understood why philosophers ever asked it 
And my answer to why is there something rather than nothing is my answer to it is, well, why wouldn't there be? Right. I mean, you know, I, I just, I don't, I, I, at the risk of sort of, you know, peeing on your, on one of your favorite things, I, I just think that's the sort of thing that philosophers should have nothing to do with. It's, it's what gives the discipline a terrible, a terrible affect. <laughs> I just think it's a dumb question, man. You know, you know, even if you think the question, <laughs> it, that question is dumb and not interesting and not profound or anything. I think the, the the fact that it seems so deep and interesting and important and puzzling to so many people, and it doesn't seem that way to you. And, and likewise, you can say this for any number of other questions where for some people it strikes them as like a profound, deep mystery and others sort of shrug and they 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 see some maybe m- mundane fact there or something. That is an interesting fact, wouldn't you say? Is it? I mean, gosh, people are people are complicated, man. I mean, you know, we all contain multitudes. It does. It doesn't surprise me at all that that you know there would be profound differences about anything to do with life, the universe, you know, people's place in it, even just the backgrounds that people come from are so profoundly different. I mean, you know, you come from an ethnic Jewish sort of family where that sort of heavily hangs over the cult, the family culture. And, you know, you trace your, your family history back and it goes back to Eastern Europe. And, and if you go back a couple of generations, everybody's Orthodox and either from Poland or Russia or Ukraine or, you know, you're just going to have a very distinctive set of orientations that someone, you know, who, who comes from a high Episcopal church and, you know, whose family goes back five generations in the U.S., you know, a real blue bud wasp, going to have a totally different totally different sensibility and view of the world. And I do think that there is something, at least in the Jewish temperament, that is pretty anti-metaphysical and pretty grounded and earth earthy. And thus, you know, not really prone to these sorts of big questions or prone to kind of mock them to a certain degree. I mean, there's that wonderful clip from the beginning, early parts of Annie Hall where Alvi's, Alvi's mother takes him to the doctor and says that he refuses to eat or do his homework. And uh, and the doctor asks why. And he says, well, because the universe is expanding and eventually it's going to dis- be destroyed and nothing, there, there's, you know, there's no point in doing anything. And his mother's response is to look at him and says, why is that your business? Brooklyn is not expanding. And that's sort of how I feel about inflationary philosophy. I mean, that's how I feel. When, when you ask me a question, like, why is there something rather than nothing? My inclination is to give a Woody Allenish answer. Um, I, I, and a part of me thinks, God, does Goyam think about weird stuff, you know? I mean, just sort of- <laughs> yeah. But so, so here's what I'm thinking, though, about this, which is... Which is of course foolish because they're it's not as if no Jewish philosophers have pursued these questions. So I don't want you know, I don't want to push this metaphor too far, but that is how I react. I get it. I get it. Well, I'm you've now got me thinking about something analogous to the uh, problem of peer disagreement, which we've discussed before mm-hmm. on your show, mm-hmm. uh, which roughly not that uh, for the benefit of the listener, I know you're familiar with it. It's just that uh, if I have a strong philosophical conviction and you have the opposite conviction and we regard each other as intellectual peers and we each understand the other's evidence. It's weird to think how it is that we could each be justified in maintaining our own views, but it's also weird to think that we wouldn't be justified in in maintaining our own views, given that we've each thought about it and, and, and so on and so forth. And so I think there's an analogous issue here, which is our, uh, even if, it, if it's true that my philosophical temperament is informed by the particularities of, of my upbringing and that sort of thing, yours is just as informed by yours. Oh, yeah, um, does, yeah. that, does that make you, does that cause any loss of confidence in your temperament or inclination to reevaluate it or see it from a new perspective or something? No, but that's that goes to another one of our long-standing disagreements, and that is, I think that most philosophical questions and answers are suffer from indeterminacy. So I don't actually think that there is a correct 
my the honorific I tend to use for philosophical accounts. I don't, I'm not even going to call them theories. I think we should leave the word theory for science. Um, my general honorific or praise term for philosophical accounts is whether or not they are more or less apt. I, I, I don't think that most, like, in other words, I don't think that there's a right position between metaphysical realists and anti-realists. I don't think that there, I mean, I, I tend towards anti-realist views in that regard, but I don't think that that's something that's in any way demonstrable in any event, whether it's true or false is not really sort of the point of it, it seems to me. But I mean, we could talk more about that. But yeah, the reason that it doesn't bother me is because I don't generally think that philosophical accounts or questions are determined, have determinate answers or are determinate. I, I think that they're, they suffer from pretty widespread indeterminacy. Obviously, some of the very, very tight, narrow, small questions, which cross over with questions in the sciences, you know, but like the question of whether truth is correspondence or coherence or some version of deflation, deflationary truth, I don't think is something that ever is even in ever in principle resolvable. This reminds me of uh, something that came up toward the end of my podcast episode with J.C. Reese. It seems like you and he are two peas in a pod with regard to this kind of thing, because he he said he advocated a view called semanticism, which is that all philosophical questions are themselves like reducible to like matter, matters of semantics. Like once you once you clarify the terms or something, the, the the question seems to dissolve. I hope I'm not misstating it, it, but it was it was something like that. You can hear it in his own words on my toward the end of my podcast with J.C. Reese Anthus, and my response to him was to ask, well, the claim, the, the semanticism itself is a substantive philosophical position, right? Like, could you apply it to itself and say that whether or not philosophical questions are purely semantic disagreements is itself a matter of semantic disagreement? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like this is a substantive question about whether philosophical questions can be dissolved into semantics in this way. Well, I don't know if I would go with the, I don't know that if I would agree with, with the semanticism myself, if you were to ask me, look, this reminds me a lot of the sort of the, the, the gotcha criticism of the verification principle. And I, I always thought that was the worst argument against it. Um, I generally think gotcha arguments are bad arguments, but in this case, I don't really even need, feel the need to do that because I don't have any problem with the suggestion that I might be wrong about my meta principle. In other words, uh, sure, it could be, it could turn out to be the case that there really is an independent fact of the matter as to whether correspondence or coherence is the correct account of truth. I don't think so, but I certainly don't think I'm not taking my, that, that view as axiomatic or as, you know, that's, that's, I could tell you why I think it, I, I could point to a bunch of reasons why I think that these are that the question of correspondence versus coherence versus some other is in, is in, is indeterminate, but I am not, I, it's not something I'm going to sort of, you know, uh, plant a flag in and stay. That would that would be contradictory to my entire orientation. I mean, my entire orientation is I don't think these are determinate questions. I don't think that these are the kinds of things that philosophical accounts are even meant to do. And so um, I think I think philosophy is almost entirely critical and about this this is going to get us into all kinds of territory that you may just want to go into. I, I have a very Solarzian view of philosophy. I think I think philosophy belongs firmly within the manifest image, and I have very very specific notions of what that means that lead me to think of philosophical accounts as being very different sorts of things than the theories we get in science. And I do think one of the biggest mistakes philosophers have made has has been in confusing those, especially in the analytic tradition in the last century, philosophy more and more took itself to be doing something sort of like what science was doing. And I just think that that's a mistake. I agree with you about that. I think there are lots of things we could linger over here, but I think I want to get into the paper that I, I mentioned at the beginning, knowledge, wisdom, and the philosopher. Why don't you say a little bit about 
what it was you were doing with this paper and how you've come to change your mind about parts of it? Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. The paper is designed to do the following. It's ostensive or ostensible subject is the difference between knowledge and wisdom and what philosophy is about, which of those philosophy is primarily concerned with. But that really simply is the mechanism by which to articulate a view of the history of philosophy. In other words, I use the question of knowledge versus wisdom as an opportunity to sketch out a different, a, ma- a little bit of a different picture of the unfolding of the history of philosophy, one that's different from your standard empiricism, rationalism, synthesized in Kant, splitting into continental and analytic, you know, it, it, to get out of that frame and to try and, and look at the, the, the history, at least the modern history in a different frame. And so I use the question about knowledge versus wisdom to sort of distinguish what I call mainline philosophy from two distinct philosophical countercultures, one of which was a reaction against the mainline tradition and the other of which was a purification of the mainline tradition. The mainline tradition I describe as being small r rationalistic and thus concerned primarily with knowledge. Small r rationalistic, thus concerned primarily with knowledge. My paradigms for this are people like you know everyone from Plato to Descartes to Kant to John Rawls, uh, just straight through. I then said that there was a conservative reaction to this that is def- that is characterized prominently by its emphasis of wisdom over knowledge. And that's the tradition that I trace from Aristotle through David Hume into the 20th century, people like the ordinary language philosophers, the later Wittgenstein, etc. Yeah, tell me a little bit about the, the split between wisdom and knowledge. Right, so wisdom involves the successful application of one's intelligence to the imperatives that one encounters in daily life. Knowledge is simply the possession of information. You could have a highly knowledgeable six-year-old, but you couldn't have a wise one. There's no way to acquire wisdom other than through actual lived experience. And that's because the successful application of intelligence to the challenges one confronts in life require an, a skilled and adept capacity to deal with particularity. Um, that, that is, particularity is what defines one's engagement in daily life, and particularity, of course, resists generalization. And so a wise person isn't simply applying knowledge to their lives. They're applying accumulated experience, right? If you'd only apply that which you you know intellectually to your daily life, you're going to wind up mishandling a lot of it because the devil's in the details and knowledge is always at some level of generality. The sort of knowledge that you would bring to bear from, you know, let's say philosophy is always pitched at some level of generality. Uh, this is why when you try to just, you know, sort of ham-fistedly applied philosophical moral theories, let's say, to life, you usually get terrible results. Um, I like to say that people who, who, who take themselves to be behaving strictly according to moral philosophies usually act, act wrongly more often than they act rightly. And that's because the right thing to do is always going to be dependent on the partic- particularities of whatever scenarios one's, wi- one's in. And to deal with those successfully requires a sensitivity to circumstance, not knowledge of theories. So I think you're, you're right that wisdom, like practical wisdom requires some sort of familiarity with particulars. But there's there's some level of generality in that. If I have to decide what to do about some particular circumstance, there's some rule that I'm appealing to, even if it's not like Kant's categorical imperative that it must apply to absolutely all similar circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. It does seem to me that there's something wrong with with the, the view uh, particularism that denies that there's any generality uh, when, with regard to morals. There's just you know, one particular one particular after another, and each one requires its own customized response. Seems like wisdom requires some balance between 
a particularity and generality. Well, I, I don't know how far you put him on the particular scale, but I, in this regard, generally agree almost entirely with Aristotle. I do believe that there is a level of generalization that's possible, but it is almost completely empty in terms of, of what it actually provides by way of guidance. What Aristotle basically tells us in the Comician Ethics is that what reasoning can get you to pretty much is don't do too much, don't do too little, and do the right amount. What counts as all of that is entirely particular. Um, and I think that that's true. Um, so how would you feel about like W.D. Ross's idea of prima facie duties, where you've got different kinds of considerations apply to you? For example, don't break promises, show gratitude, don't cause any harm. There are a few others. So those are general rules. But the actual when, ultimate decision you have to make in a particular circumstance where you have many of these coming into conflict and overlapping, that there's no algorithm that's going to just give you the result. Look, I'm, I'm a huge fan of W.D. Ross. Uh, I would say after Aristotle, he's probably my second most greatest influence in my ethical thinking. But I think that his views are very closely uh, similar, uh, very assimilable with Aristotle's. I don't think it's an accident that he's the he's the most famous translator of the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, and I don't think that I don't think that he viewed his own view as being all that far off from Aristotle. Um, um, so there's a few things I wanted to sort of say about Ross. And I'll allow you to determine how much of the about Ross you want us to talk about. But first of all, it's worth noting that Ross views ethics, ethical theorizing, as entirely as entirely descriptive, not prescriptive. That is, it simply is an effort to make sense of the moral intuitions that we already have. It's not. It's not a top down like. Singer's utilitarianism is right, so that's worth noting um, um, because I do think it lends itself more towards the, the, that attitude towards ethics lends itself more towards my sort of view uh, of it. The other thing I would say is that what one's prima facie duties are ultimately isn't really very interesting, right? Um, because you're always going to have tons of them. They simply arise out of the relationships you have, and those are going to be many and myriad in nature. What's interesting is what your actual duty is, and that entirely depends on the particularities of the circumstances. And I would say one last thing about this, and that is that Ross may have made a mistake, or if not, he just simply didn't wasn't explicit enough about it. It's all very well to say there's a prima facie duty not to lie, but if I ask you, well, what counts as lying? Now that's going to be that's going to again require us to dive into the particularities, right? Yeah, like if I if I say something true, but but obviously misleading. That seem, is that a lie? If I even that more, kind of thing. Yeah, even more. No, but I, w I was thinking even more deeply than that. So, one of the things I really like about Aristotle is that for Aristotle, no action, at least at least neutrally described, is intrinsically right or wrong. Any action can be right or wrong depending on the circumstances, because what counts as moderate or extreme is going to depend on the circumstances, right? And so, there's going to be times when not truth-telling is the right thing to do. Now, to call something a lie is to say, is to, is to call it a wrongful telling of an, of an untruth, right? Um, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. I would. Because I, I, think, would. I think the justified lie is not a, a contradiction in terms. No, but what I would say is that lying is a moral, to say that lying is wrong is analytic, the word wrongness is already really. If you want to state this neutrally, it's it would be non-truth telling is wrong. But that, of course, that's not always going to be the case, right? Look, it's the same thing with murder is wrong. That's analytic. I think that's true of murder. I don't think it's true of lying. I think lying it, you can it, catch out. The word lying to indicate a vice. Now, if you simply mean lying descriptively then it's just non-truth telling or, or, or falsehood telling, but that's not always going to be wrong, right? I don't think you ultimately can avoid the particularity because even what counts as the relevant vice or virtue is going to depend on the particularities, right? And so, so my telling you an untruth on one occasion is going to be a virtue, and my telling you a truth on that occasion would be a vice, and so I don't see how you avoid particularity as being the overridingly relevant element. And I, that to me, that sort of makes sense, right? Because 
people are not archetypes and situations are not are only very roughly generalizable um and so it doesn't surprise me that in order to behave properly with respect to entities as complex as people is going to resist a lot of generalization well i wanted to move on to different a different thing here it's it's something that i've noticed before and have wanted to write about and that is it has always seemed to me that there's a connection between a lot of modern philosophy ideas, like but by modern, I mean, you know, Descartes, Francis Bacon, a few others I could name. I think Hobbes, their ideas about epistemology and some revolutionary political ideas, the like tear it down, rebuild society yeah. from a blank slate, from a from a clean, pure blank slate. I'm swerving into politics here, sure. but I, I see some of that mindset with the 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 canceling and the tearing down of statues and let's get rid of all of the badness and start from scratch. And it does remind me of sort of Descartes method that like, I'm going to purge my mind of all the bad uncertain beliefs and I'm going to start over from a totally clean slate. And so I, I think there's a tight connection there that I think it's not just historical. And I would further make this, this other claim, which is that noticing this kind of thing pushes us in the direction of seeing the holism of, of the intellectual ideas, right? Like what you might think about epistemology might have ramifications for your political views in ways that are not easily seen, but you can you can see them over time in retrospect. Yeah, I listen. I agree with that, and and to that extent, I probably remain somewhat conservative in my orientation. As you know, because you read the paper, I talk quite a lot about that and um, uh, contrast the conservative temperament with the uh, liberal and the radical one. And both the liberal and the radical one bring think that, that abstract theory should be the primary means by which political forms of life are determined. And... The difference simply between them is that the radical is much more purist about that, and the liberal, uh, at least if the liberal is sensible, will have a more mitigated sort of version of that, right? And like I said, I no longer think of myself as a conservative anymore. I think of myself as a, as a liberal in the older sense, and so um, my own feelings about that relationship have shifted a little bit, but not a lot. What what happens is that, I what I think happens historically is that the scientific revolution is such an overwhelming transformation of the intellectual landscape and of the sort of the epistemic stance that intellectuals were inclined to take that it was simply applied indiscriminately into every area including areas where it doesn't where it really doesn't work right so so one of the things that i tell my students when i talk about this is i tell them that an inherently conservative frame that we're all familiar with is the law, right? In the law, precedent matters and cannot, you know, in other words, a logical deductive argument is not sufficient to overturn a longstanding precedent. And that's because the aim of the law is not just to discover what's true or false. The aim of the law is partly is social order and continuity, right? Uh, to maintain social order and continuity. In other words, it has a purely prudential practical dimension that is a significant portion of what it's about. And I think the same is true of politics more generally. And so the kind of, the kind of small R rationalism that I think is not only appropriate, but essential to scientific investigation. Every single scientist should be radical in that way, right? Um, um, because their sole purpose is to discover what's true and what's false. Now, let me now let me uh, say something in response to that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you've ever read Michael Polanyi's Personal Knowledge. No, I've read Polanyi, but no, I've not read Personal Knowledge, no. In Personal Knowledge, Polanyi points out that all sorts of widely accepted theories are, are falsified regularly like i i'd have to go back and look at the book to come up with the specific examples but there have been experiments that were very seem to have been very well done experiments that produced data incompatible with the theory of relativity 
and they just get ignored by the scientific community because, well, we don't really have a better alternative to the theory of relativity right now. And there's all this precedent in terms of what other people have have said that goes in a different direction. So scientists don't acknowledge it, but there is, in fact, a conservatism to the practice. There, there are sort of tacit rules that govern the way major transformations can happen within within the field to the extent that if you have if you have some information that's really really out of step with other discoveries it's not going to be listened to and perhaps it shouldn't be yeah i just look i mean to the extent to which the science as an activity is a human activity it is going to it is going to fall under some of the certain sort of prudential elements that are going to be present in all human activities. But I do think that there is a fundamental difference in that traditions and customs have a very positive substantive role to play in institutions and activities and forms of life whose purpose is in part to maintain a a continuity and to maintain social order. That is simply absent. In other words, tradition should be irrelevant to scientists in a way that, in my view, it cannot be to human affairs, right? It, it, it must not be to human affairs. If it turns out that a, that a theory is, is that a scientific theory is false and the evidence contradicts it and, and, it, no, and, it, and it fails to make adequate predictions in a whole domain of areas and all the sorts of things about which it should be jettisoned. Well, that's, that's true. That's true. That's true about certain traditions practically too, though. If if you've got certain traditions practically, like I don't know, uh, feet binding is one that's th- th- with regard to Chinese culture. Although that actually originated more recently than many people believe in the in the Qing Dynasty. But you know, take your pick of a truly horrible tradition, and even conservatives should say yes. Some of these traditions should be jettisoned. And so I'm I'm not entirely convinced that. The situation is different with science. If it's true, as Polanyi thinks, that the tradition of science itself is a, is a tradition that tends toward the truth, but it's it can't be a rigidly strict kind of tradition, you know, or there'd just be no progress. I, I just think that there's a, a fundamental difference between, and this again comes straight out of Aristotle, there's, there's a fundamental difference between the aims and the activities of the contemplator versus that of the person engaged in the polis. They're just fundamentally different kinds of activity, and they're governed by fundamentally different values. Continuity is a positive value in human affairs, and I just don't see that it has any necessary probably positive valence in science. If, you know, a theory within cellular and molecular biology turns out to be false, it should be dropped. It is not clear to me that the fact that someone can demonstrate that something is false over on the human affairs side necessarily means or entails that it, that it should be abandoned, or even if it should be abandoned, that it should be abandoned immediately. I mean, there are all sorts of considerations. You know, I, I for example, you know, I, I am very much uh, on the pro-choice side of the ledger. But I think it would have been a lot better for everyone had this been settled or in a more organic fashion than settled by the courts, because what it did was it sort of left all the divisions in the society in place and simply issued a kind of a top-down uh, fiat change that, in my view, is partly responsible for the sort of terrible culture wars we suffer now. Abortion is not the only one, but there's a bunch of others. But in, in terms of replacing a scientific theory, it, that's exactly how it should go, right? I mean, if it's wrong, if it's false, if it if it's if it's uh, contradicted by the evidence, you got to pick a different. You got because the only purpose of the activity is to discover what's true, right? I'm not talking about its application. When you talk about you know the application of scientific knowledge to engineering, now that does now cross over into human affairs where now we do have to consider questions of prudence and 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 impact and all that sort of thing but purely theoretical science seems to me its sole its sole purpose is to discover what's true right and that's simply not the purpose of politics or ethics or anything that deals primarily with uh life our lives and our activities at least that's how i think of it i mean I've- well i i agree with you about that the question is just whether you could think of what most scientists have generally found and come to believe over a long period of time 
surely that's got to be some indicator of a defeasible indicator of truth, right? You could you, people do come come around and sort of shatter the existing paradigm. But Polanyi's point is, we focus on science uh, so much on these paradigm shifting sort of events, you know, Copernicus and, and Einstein, that we tend to overlook the you know the preservation of knowledge that happens between those where crackpot theories get rejected where if we took all of them as seriously as we could uh, without any kind of deference to the community uh, we just we just wouldn't be able to make progress right at this point is and that i do think there's an analogous thing there with, with politics because yeah you have a truly terrible tradition slavery terrible tradition absolutely right to jettison it should have been jettisoned long before the appeal to tradition is just overwhelmed by competing considerations in that case as it often is in science i i would want to say yeah look i don't i don't deny that there may be places where an intellectual or theoretical consideration has such an overwhelming force that it's that it um entails immediate swift immediate political transformation. I'm not going to deny that. Of course, there's instances of that. I would just sort of say largely, if not even perhaps overwhelmingly, I would say that science and and, and human affairs are different in this way. There's a reason why no part nobody who goes through, you know, a particle physics program is reading Aristotle's physics, right? Or or even Newton. They're not reading any of those primary sources. And the reason is it just doesn't it's not relevant, right? It doesn't matter. Um, it's of interest to historians, but it's not of any use to an actual practicing current scientist. Whereas you can't do a political philosophy or political theorizing competently without channeling the tradition. And I, I think that's because the effort to discover the best ways to manage human affairs is a fundamentally different kind of project than to discover what's true and what's false. All right. So you're you're insisting on this line here between, you know, science and practical human affairs, like the, the pursuit of truth versus um, functioning well in ordinary human affairs. And you want to put philosophy on the practical side of, of that divide. Is that right? I don't know that I... I, I... Now, you know, when I wrote the essay, when I wrote the paper, I would have said yes to you because I had much more of sort of a a philosophical agenda. But now, the extent to which I still embrace the paper, uh, what I would say is I simply am trying to point out these these contrasting and different strands, right? I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm interested in providing a new lens through which to look at the history of modern philosophy or even all of philosophy, other than the ones that we traditionally have already used, because I think that there's illumination to be had in doing so. And that I, I guess what I really wanted to do was I wanted to say, look, let's, it's important that we at least be clear about the difference between a wisdom tradition and a knowledge tradition, between an, an activity whose primary uh, virtue is to do it wisely as opposed to knowledgeably, and the divide that you just described, human, you know, the, 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 those intellectual endeavors that are concerned with human affairs and those that are concerned uh, with scientific discovery. That, it, with regard to the former, the chief virtue is wisdom, and with regard to the chief modality that one requires to do it well is was is wisdom. Uh, whereas with the latter, it's it knowledge. To the extent to which large areas of philosophy are tasked with trying to develop best ways of living, conducting oneself, etc., to the extent to which they've pursued a knowledge trajectory rather than the wisdom one is is why the, the, the theories that come out are usually pretty terrible. And if you try to follow them in any sort of a slavish way, you're going to wind up behaving badly more often than you behave well. Uh, that, again, the people I fear the most are the people with very well-established, settled moral philosophies, right? Because they always, almost always act terribly. And that's because they they apply a theoretical apparatus to something virtually all of the successful navigation of which requires sensitivity to the particularities. If you look at ancient philosophy, and I'm I'm thinking in particular of Hellenistic philosophy, each of those schools, the Epicureans, the Stoics, and the Skeptics, it's quite clear that what they were doing is completely on the side of the practical. I mean, they had views. They had views about the nature of reality. But if you ask them, what are you doing studying skepticism? It's, well, when I 
can get to a state of suspended judgment. I'm released from the suffering, the tension, the dogmatism that tends to enslave people who have not done this. So they, they wouldn't be able to assert that, but they would be able to say, well, this works for me. This is a path I take to free myself of these troubles. And you, you find a similar thing with the other schools that the why of philosophy is right front and center there, and they never have any trouble answering it in the way that contemporary analytic philosophers, you know, when they ask, well, why do philosophy? They've got to do this song and dance about like, oh, you know, our undergrads' test scores are higher and this kind of thing. Well, look, I, I definitely agree that ancient philosophy, there's one sense in which it is overwhelmingly and demonstrably superior to modern philosophy. And that is precisely along the lines that you described. They had a far greater appreciation for the purely practical dimension of the discipline. It was far higher in their list of concerns. And um, with Plato being a notable exception, which is why I identify him as the beginning of the sort of the, 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 the tradition that I'm saying has, has pointed philosophy much more towards knowledge than wisdom, because of all those philosophers that you mentioned, Plato strikes me as the least prudent, the least adept at understanding the complexity and difficulty of human affairs, and thus the most sort of proto-totalitarian in a way. I mean, that's something, of course, that Karl Popper threw at him, um, and I would agree. I would agree with that. His is by far the most repugnant political vision that I can think of among the the, the main ones. I'd much rather live in a country designed by Aristotle than by Plato, let's put it that way. Uh, um, yeah, you're here. Yeah, Um I really just wanted now the, the sort of shedding some of my earlier political commitments. Really, what I wanted this paper to do was just to clearly identify the extent to which human affairs, so the successful navigation of human affairs, depends upon primarily wisdom, not knowledge, and that the extent to which philosophy has has completely put its eggs in the knowledge basket. It has, at least for a good portion of its uh, existence, done a very poor job at suggesting how we should deal with human affairs. I think, and, and I think it only got sort of worse and worse. Um, the 20th century being sort of the, the lowest point, I think, that philosophers ever reached. They either were complicit in some of the worst political decisions and institutions of the of that era, or they were just absent. I mean, they pretty much left it to essayists and journalists and novelists and others to address these profound questions. Then. It, it's, an, it's frankly an embarrassment. All that work that George Orwell was doing should have been done by professional philosophers rather than having them get in bed with Mao or Maoists and Stalinists or, or just just completely check out like they did in the analytic tradition. So, so this, this makes me think about a couple of other questions, which sure. is another point where we're more or less on the same page, or at least we have a very similar set of concerns, is with the... Um, Boy, I, I even want to use the word takeover of philosophy by activists, the, the redirection of the field in this social justice direction. We have maybe different reasons for being alarmed by this, but I think we both are. And, uh, very much so, yes. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that you're, you're saying makes me wonder, do you think that philosophy has made itself vulnerable to this because it lacks its own sort of praxis. And so here can come some people who say, I can tell you what philosophy is for. Philosophy is for promoting social justice. And I have this neat little package to tell you exactly what that is. Of course, anything goes to achieve it. This can give philosophers a sense of purpose where they haven't had one and more likely to go along with this maybe. Look, I don't, my objection to the woke click inside philosophy isn't, that they're engaged with and are concerned with human affairs. It's that they're illiberal, <laughs> proto-totalitarian, and to my mind, uh, have views with regard to human affairs that I just find repulsive, right? I mean, that, that, in other words, the problem isn't that they're engaging with public life. That's what, that, that's what, you know, what I'm saying is we ought to be doing. The problem is that they're engaging it in it with no wisdom whatsoever and with maximal terrible knowledge, right? I mean, they're sort of, they're sort of the last people I would, would want <laughs> involved in planning, managing, orienting a society. So my problem with them is entirely sort of at the ground level. It's not with the fact that they're engaged. I wish that we, we, all of us were much more engaged, especially now, you know, I just finished recording a dialogue for blogging with Crispin Sartwell 
And one of the things I said, just sort of as we were winding down and just sort of chatting more generally was I said, you know, I really think that it's a shocking thing that in the middle of one of the biggest moral challenges we've ever had, which is this COVID-19 and its and, and our attempts to mitigate its effects. I can't think of any philosophers who are of any prominence that are engaged in a serious public conversation about how the hell to negotiate significant values across types, right? How does one, how does one decide between mitigation of physical harm and the deprivation of life opportunity? How do we do that? You know, how do I measure an 85-year-old being able to go to work without worrying about getting corona? How do I measure that and compare it to my daughter being robbed of her prom, her high school graduation, a meaningful college experience in which she's able to socialize with people her age in a proper manner? That should be what we're talking about. The utilitarians think that they've got the answer to this. The answer is expected utility and how many life years has your daughter got versus an 85-year-old person and all of this. Of course, I don't think you'll be happy with that kind of a, an approach. No, but I mean, I would be relieved if we actually ha- had such a conversation. I'm not aware of people having any such conversation. Indeed, I've been trying to provoke people to have this conversation now for months, and I've got no takers. Uh, I've only able to get people to have this conversation on, on my own platforms that I host. My point is simply being is that I- I'm not upset at the social justice warriors for engaging with questions that concern the polis. I'm concerned with them because I think they're they're a toxic nightmare and that they have terrible views and and that also beyond that they don't know how to behave. I mean they, they, their behavior is so appalling that at a very mundane ground level they disrupt the capacity of philosophy to operate because they make the environment such a f- sort of toxic fever swamp that any reasonable person uh is just going to stay away from it. Um it's not a small part of the reason why I've mostly moved all of my work onto my own platforms that I control. Yeah. So I, su- I suppose maybe there's this divergence from us because I, I don't I don't disagree with your characterization of what's wrong with their practical approach. But I also think even if it's true that what we do as philosophers is ultimately grounded in practical considerations, I I think Not all that, of it, but a good uh, portion of it, but, much more of it but, than, than modern philosophy has has acknowledged. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I think Part of what we do is got involved some kind of abstraction from the problems immediately in front of us, right? We've got to, we're not just thinking about building bridges and even curing diseases, even though that stuff certainly has to be done. But we are sort of giving ourselves a kind of intellectual space to let our minds just try to figure these questions out, ultimately in the service of human betterment and, and wisdom and this kind of thing. But it does require this kind of abstraction. If philosophy is just completely in the fray of what's on people's minds and they're politically in the current moment, I don't think it's of much use to us. I don't know if we disagree about this or whether it's simply that we characterize it differently. So let me try and characterize it as clearly as I can, and then and then you can decide or the audience can decide how to what extent we agree or disagree. Look, let's take the question that I raised with regard to the mitigation strategies with COVID-19, right? Our current mitigation strategy involves a maximal protecting of life. In other words, at least what we're aiming to do is arrange everything in such a way so that the most vulnerable people to the virus remain able to fully engage in public life, right? So why is it that when my daughter goes to the University of Indiana this fall, why is it that she's going to have to wear a mask indoors everywhere that she is? Why is she not going to have any kind of, at least if she obeys the the, the health orders, any kind of social life that might involve intimate contact with anybody? Well, it's, it's so as not to kill the 75-year-old professors, the 80-year-old professors, right? Now, I might ask you, why is that more important? What if I was to suggest the 75-year-old professor should retire and get off campus? We should protect him in his home, but we should not, in a sense, decide in favor of him over a 19-year-old whose life has barely started. Now, I think those are all fair questions to ask. The answers that you could give are many. The good answers that you could give are also many, some of them contradictory. I think what philosophers, the role philosophers have to play in that is, A, 
to sh- to lay out what all those po- well, at least a lot of those possible answers are and how you arrive at them and to uh, to model a kind of a disciplined treatment of that of those questions and possible answers it's up to the public to answer those questions and decide which they find the most perva- persuasive which values they think deserve the most weight heavy weighting and so i i what i think our, our role should be in these sorts of questions should be to help the public and the political leadership engage in a disciplined conversation about the pressing questions at hand. That's what we should be doing. That does involve some ground level involvement, but it also does involve some level of abstraction. Well, this is this has been really fascinating, Dan. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface here, but do you have anything else you'd like to add? Any notes you'd like to end on? No, I um both you and Robert, I'm very grateful that both you and Robert Gresses have been added to my circle of people with whom I regularly inter interlocute. And um, I uh, wish you the best of success for your own platform and work. And um, I hope that, you know, we'll do more things together. Uh, that to me, this is the most enjoyable part of the of uh, what we do. It's 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 really the reason why I went into it. My aims were not as lo- probably as lofty as the ones you entered the profession with. I entered the profession mostly so I could do things like what we're doing now. I didn't enter it primarily to do academic research. I sort of my love for philosophy grew out of the the love for intellectually inflected socializing. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, so to me this is the preferred format as the discussion. I love to write I think I'm quite a good writer, but what I really love to do is talk with other people. Well, I think I've certainly learned more from conversations I had with people than any of the seminars I ever attended. And I don't mean that as a slight to any of the professors I've had. I just think it's it's the case that the, these more freeform discussions are where, you know, learning actually happens. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. Well, I hope to have you back sometime. Thank you very much.